Uh, let me ask you if you have your Bibles, or uh, direct you to, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 23, is where we will start this morning. Um, what we're going to do, or what we have been doing, is going through a, um, a series called We Are. We're studying the doctrine of the church. What is the church? Uh, how does LifePoint function as a church? Those kind of things. Uh, really looking at the beauty of church, explaining it. Um, all of those things. Now Spurgeon, I said this week one, gave us a definition. He called the church the dearest place on earth. Uh, now, for, for those that, before you roll your eyes at that, he didn't say it was the most perfect place on earth. He said it was the dearest place on earth. It's not the perfect place on earth. Why? Because everything on this side of the fall at the Garden of Eden, Eden is flawed. All of it. Everything under the sun is flawed. That includes us, and it includes the church. We're flawed people. So when we love Jesus... That's a call to not only love Jesus, but it's also a call to love his flawed bride as well. And we don't abstain, uh, we don't flee from, and we don't casually date what God has called us to gather to and commit to, which is the church. Yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as individuals, but our faith is never individual. It's always communal. All right, that's the church. That's why Peter goes on to say what the church is, right? He says it's a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The lover of Jesus has to be a lover of the church. Out of the gate, week one, we talked about the importance of church membership. That it wasn't contractual, it's covenantal. And when we preached on that and really laid up a text to hopefully lead some people to that, I wanted to let you know, uh, praise God, his word moves his people. Uh, today we've had uh, 15 people are meeting down for the new member class this morning. And uh, man, that's just a good praise. It's awesome. There's other people that are also prayerfully considering uh, joining uh, the church. And uh, maybe if that's you, maybe would you consider g- jumping in on the next one? We'd love to, to do that with you as well. Uh, last week, week uh, two in the series, or three in the series, uh, we begin to look at uh, the sacraments, the two things that Jesus called us as members of the church to gather together and practice, and they are called sacraments or ordinances, okay, which is the which is baptism, we celebrated it last week, um, and it's also the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the sacrament of initiation, meaning it initiates us into the faith, um, and it's only done once, okay? Uh, now, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of continuation because we are continually called to practice it over and over and over again until either we die or the Lord comes back in all of his glory. All right, so we are, we're looking at today the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of that, and we're going to proclaim today that we as individually as believers, but collectively as the church, that we are invited to the table that is the Lord's Supper. Okay, uh, so this is a table. We obviously have a little setup here. We're trying to get your head and mind around this idea of a table today. Um, November and December 
are very, uh, man, I love these times of year. For many of you, you probably love these as well. For me, I love these months because of all of the food that's getting ready to come in these next two months, right? Um, if you want to participate in pecan pie for your pastor month, if you'll just see Kim today after service, she'll tell you how you can do that. Uh, but I love the food, yes, but what I love more than the food is, uh, is the meals, meaning uh, sitting around the table with, with family, uh, with friends, with uh, church and fellowship, all those things that we do, um, I love the meals. Uh, if you look at our culture, all of really our significant memories in our life have been marked by meals. Uh, maybe your first date uh, was a meal, right? Uh, maybe it was at Taco Bell, but you still remember it, right? Uh, maybe you're, uh, we're talking about things like baptisms. We have meals after baptisms. We have graduation, uh, weddings, anniversaries, birthday parties. All of these memories that we have are marked by meals. Uh, but it's not only in our culture that we celebrate the importance of meals. Throughout the beginning of time, the Bible depicts mealtime, table fellowship, as a place that God uses to form, grow, and deepen relationships, not only with him, but with other believers as well. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And then we see Jesus comes on the scene. And what does he do? He often reclines at the table with his disciples, eating meals. He ate uh, meals with sinners, all right? Uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the early church broke bread in their homes together, which we are also called to do, to extend hospitality, to open up our homes to meals. Uh, so all throughout the scripture, we see meals as being something that's very important. Eating together is an important, important thing. Today, we're going to look at uh, the most important meal of all time, which is called the Lord's Supper. Uh, meals, if you this idea that God has really used... Food is a way to nourish our bodies, but he uses meals with other people, uh, with God's people, to nourish our souls. And, and I think that's what this is today, this picture here that we're getting ready to talk about a sacrament uh, where he would deepen and nourish us together and our souls as we eat at this table. So this sacrament, I uh, said the Lord's Supper, but uh, traditionally it has been called a, a, a several different names throughout the church history depending on the denomination that you go to, different language. Primarily, it's been referred to as, as three different names, okay? The first one would be either Holy Communion or Communion, which gets obvious name from sitting down, having a meal, and having communion with God and having communion with other people who believe in Jesus. All right, so this is the first one. Another name that it's referred to is Eucharist. And Eucharist gets its name from the Greek word eukristo, which means to thank. So we're sitting down to give thanks to Jesus Christ. Uh, and the, the more, probably the more, uh, most common name was the Lord's Supper, which Paul referred to at. And uh, that is in reference to the last supper that Jesus ate with his disciples um, in the upper room the night before he was to be uh, betrayed. So uh, that's the picture we're going to look at today. And this, this sacrament is probably most commonly known uh, because of Leonardo da Vinci's painting in 1495, which we'll show you a picture of that just to get our heads around that, which is the Last Supper. Uh, we know that. That was on Grandma's uh, house, right? She had a picture of that in her house, right? Uh, but that's the picture that we're, we're familiar with. We see it. We, we, oh, it's the Lord's Supper. Everybody in the common world, the developed world, knows that's the Last Supper. But however... 
Uh, there are a lot of people that have no idea what's happening at that table right there. They don't understand the weight uh, of what's getting ready to happen. They don't approach it with the, the reverence that it is due. They don't fully comprehend the history behind it. And therefore today, uh, what we're going to do is we're going we're to attempt to do that. We're going to try to put ourselves in this position and ask the Lord that he would uh, help us to understand it and appreciate it and approach it with more reverence as we take it at the end of service today. So let me pray for us, and then we will do that together. Father, this table is a place, it's a sacred place that we do not deserve to be at. We are unworthy guests to be at the table. There's no one in this room that is worthy to sit at your table. But those who believe in Jesus acknowledge that we are welcome because of the worthiness of Jesus. That we put our hope and our trust in him and because we have done that, you invite us to the table. God, would you help us who do believe in Jesus Christ move past the nostalgia, uh, the ritualistic movement of taking the Lord's Supper, which many of us have done many times in our life? Would you break through all of that familiarity? And would you give us a refreshing new awe and wonder of what it means to sit at the table? And God, for the one that walked in today, for those who are the skeptics, the doubters, that are here begrudgingly, those that are attempting to find life through the pleasures of the world, those that are attempting to try to save themselves through works and deeds, would you show them that life and salvation is found in the body and the blood of Jesus only? And would you lead them by the grabbing of their heart to the cross? In Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we look at uh, we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, one of the key reasons Paul even wrote the book of Corinthians, which he's done a lot of harsh rebuking in the church in Corinth, right? They needed it. Uh, but, but one of the primary reasons he wrote 1 Corinthians was to correct their view and understanding of how they were approaching the table, how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were wicked in their ways. Uh, all of the reverence that was supposed to be at the table they didn't experience any of that. They, had, uh, they were mixing some idolatry in, in their taking of the Lord's Supper, meaning they were loving other things more than God, and they would come and they would mix them all together. Uh, there were other things that they began to do. They began to treat the Lord's table as this church picnic for gluttons and drunks. They were, they were gorging themselves with a lot of food and drinking a lot of wine and getting drunk, and this greatly bothered Paul. Uh, there were other things that they were doing, uh, experiencing some snow, uh, social snobbery. Uh, and what they did is they had factions among them. They were making distinctions uh, at the church. And they said, the poor people go over here and the rich people go here. Smart people go there. The dumb people go here. Uh, the white people, the black people, they were mixing up. And they had all these factions when they were coming to the table. And this greatly troubled Paul because it was an assault against the gospel. The gospel, the table here, is a place that unites all people of all tribes, every tongues, every language. So they were uh, completely off the rails. So Paul comes in in verse 17 through 22, and he gives them basically a, a verbal spanking of all the things that they're doing. And then an attempt 
to teach them and even remind them about the reverence that should accompany taking the Lord's Supper. He then goes in and instructs this very familiar passage that we do uh, when we take communion. So let's read this together, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the first thing I want you to see in in verse 23 is that Paul's not quoting uh, one of the other synoptic gospel writers in reference to the Lord's Supper. He's not saying, hey, I heard from from John and, and Matthew and Luke and Mark. I heard from those guys. This is what Jesus said. He says, now, I received it from the Lord myself. That's profound. And here's why. Because the resurrected Jesus didn't give a whole lot of revelations. But yet this one was important enough that he would give this instruction to Paul on how to administer the Lord's Supper. Direct revelation from the resurrected Jesus. Now in this text, twice Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Two times. He says this. So it must be important. He wants us to remember something about the Lord's Supper. We could really preach on this meal for uh, several weeks. Today we're going to look at two things that I believe he wants us to remember here in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And that is this. The wrath of God and the grace of God. The unbelievable... Wrath of God meeting the incomprehensible grace of God that is on the cross. On the cross, there's this beautiful collision between the wrath of God and the grace of God. And that is what I believe he wants us to celebrate as we take the elements later, that we wouldn't forget one of the other. We would celebrate and acknowledge the wrath of God, but then also celebrate the grace of God. These two things are what we're going to look at here now. In here, to fully really grab what was going on in that picture of the Last Supper, we have to understand what was going on that night when they were sharing that meal. What was that meal? All right. Uh, The Gospel of Luke 22 said, I earnestly desire to eat this last Passover meal with you. So in order for us to appreciate the Lord's Supper, we have to meditate on the Passover. We have to know what the Passover was, or we can't move any, any, any going any forward. Okay. So what we do in there is we rewind fourteen hundred years earlier. All right, fourteen hundred years before this, we have the Israelites. Uh, God's people are enslaved in Egypt. You kind of know how the story goes, maybe, uh, but they are enslaved in Egypt for really four hundred plus years, and they are being um, enslaved by an oppressive dictator named. Pharaoh. 
all right? Uh, and God sees this. He hears the cries of his people. This, this whole journey goes Exodus 2 to 12. So catch up, but I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, so God hears the cries of his people, and he calls out to a man named Moses. And he calls Moses, hey, I need you to live sent. And I'm going to send you on a mission to go to cry out to Pharaoh. What does Moses do in response to that call? Who am I? I can't even speak plainly. God says, you go, I will do. In the same way that he's called you and me to go and make disciples of all nations, starting with sharing the gospel with your one. And what's our quick response? Who am I? I can't even speak plainly. Listen, you go, let God do. That's what we do. Who's your one? Have you shared the gospel with your one? You go and let God do. All right? So this happened. So if you know the story. Uh, Moses gets to Egypt, goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh laughed in the face of Moses and laughed in the face of God. So what began to happen? God began to send miraculous plagues each one increasing in severity over and over and over again, displaying his power over nature, creation, and over ultimately Pharaoh. Over and over again. But what does Pharaoh do? Is he hardens his heart? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. They just kind of go back and forth over and over again, all according to the plan of God. God's not caught off guard by Pharaoh's rebellion. And then finally, they get to the tenth and final plague. This was the worst plague of all. This was in game for Egypt. This was the plague of death. And this plague of death was to come upon Egypt and it was to kill all of Egypt's firstborn, both man and beast, all of them, including Pharaoh's one and only son. This was the angel of death. But by God being rich in his mercy and grace, in preparation For the salvation that he was offering to the Israelites, he provided a way for them to escape the angel of death. He said, I need you to take a spotless, unblemished, perfect lamb. I need you to take it. I need you to kill it. I need you to slaughter it. And then I need you to do this with it. Exodus 12, 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Jump down to verse 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God with very specific instructions told them to take this lamb, this one-year-old spotless unblemished lamb, slaughter it, kill it, take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost. Just think about the gore that's behind that. Think about all of the somewhat millions of Israelites who took uh, the blood 
of this lambs and all of the bloodshed that very night in preparation for the angel of death coming through. The gore, the smell, all of this disgusting nature of sin, God's hatred towards sin. And they put it over their doorposts. So as the angel of the Lord comes in, listen, it's God, by the way. This is not the angel of death. This is God. He says, I will execute the judgment. This is God pouring out wrath, right? He will see the homes marked by the blood, and he would pass over them. Israel was faithful to listen to the instructions of the Lord. They were saved by God's grace from God's wrath. Saved by God, from God. That's the gospel in Exodus right there. That's the gospel in Exodus. You see that cross right there? That's the place where we are saved by God, from God. Saved by God, by his grace and sacrifice of Jesus, from what? From the wrath of God. We're not saved from hell. Saved from the wrath of God. By God, for, and from God. So this is what's experiencing. So God, after this Passover, he says, I need you to make a memorial. And I want you to celebrate this Passover meal throughout all of your generations. For you to remember the day that I poured out my unbelievable grace and the incomprehensible wrath that I had on your enemies. And he instituted the Passover. Today, the Jews continue to practice the Passover. Why? Because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. We don't believe that. We know he's already come. So we don't continue to practice this Passover over and over and over again. So on this night, in the picture there, Jesus is sitting down. But this night's different. This Passover will be different than every other Passover that they had ever experienced in their life. Jesus changes up the liturgy in the midst of their taking. And he's getting ready to transfer the Passover of the Old Covenant into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. Instead of just eating and taking as they typically had done of uh, the Passover, he stops in the middle of dinner and he grabs a piece of bread. He says, this is my body. Take and eat. And after dinner, he reclined, he took a cup of wine. He says, this cup is my blood. Take and eat or take and drink. So what, what is he saying here? He wasn't speaking in literal terms. He wasn't practicing or condoning cannibalism here. This is, what's happening in this text here um, is not what is called transubstantiation. I don't know if you know what that term means, but transubstantiation means there are churches and denominations, specifically the Catholic Church, teaches that this right here, these elements that are here today, that upon taking the Lord's Supper, that they've literally been transferred into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Literally. Uh, the problem that we have with this is this. In Luke 22, we are told that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father today. Resurrected. He goes and seats at the right hand of the Father. So if he's sitting physically at the right hand of the Father... How can he be hidden in a cracker from Target? He's not here. Nothing here. It's just bread. All right? 
Now, another reason why we do not believe in transubstantiation is they believe that every single time that the Lord's Supper is being taken, that there's a continual sacrifice over and over and over and over again. Every single time they take the Lord's Supper, they're constantly and continually sacrificing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ over and over again. The problem with that is that Romans 6, Paul said that Christ died once for all. He didn't, have to be, he didn't have to be killed over and over again. He did it one time for all. So we don't believe that. What we do believe is that Jesus was speaking metaphorically in this moment. That he was saying this. He was pointing the back to the Passover. He says, you know that lamb that you slaughtered? I am the lamb. You never, ever, ever again have to slaughter another goat or a bull or a lamb. Ever I'm that lamb. You know that blood that you took from the lamb and put it over your doorpost? You never have to spill lamb's blood ever again because my blood, you don't have to take it and put it over a doorpost. My blood will cover you. Those are the people that are in the new covenant, the new testament, this belief in Jesus Christ. His blood covers us and makes us righteous and forgiven. That is what he is saying about the body and the blood. This bread juice that we have today isn't magic bread. We probably got it at Publix or Sam's. Um, That's not what's happening here. He is pointing to uh, the symbolic view of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And in his taking, in our taking... Of these elements that we'll do here shortly, we are remembering, just like the Israelites in the Passover, we are remembering the incomprehensible wrath of God and the unbelievable grace of God that is found right there on the cross. Every time we do it, it's a point to those specific things. This is why he instituted a meal. For us to remember that. Because he knew that we would forget Right? We see a, a pattern of God's people from the beginning of time, forgetful, right? We saw the pattern through the Israelites. We are just like them. We forget all of the time the gospel. So we must remember. And this is one of the ways that we remember together by celebrating the Lord's Supper. But here's the deal. This remembrance doesn't end at a broken body and blood poured out. It's not where it stops. Yes, it was a gruesome uh, crucifixion and torture and all those things. But where it ended at, what uh, what we're told here by Paul in verse 26 is this whole thing ended in his death. We proclaim the Lord's death is what we're told to do when we take the elements. Why would we as Christian people proclaim and celebrate the death of Jesus Christ? Why? That's a horrific thing. It's bloody. It's horrible. Why do we celebrate that? Because that's why he was born. He was born to die. And there is no gospel without the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus Christ is the heart of the gospel. You might say, well, why did Jesus have to die? Here's why. Because there was this huge gap between God and man, and it pleased him to bridge that gap. He wasn't obligated to do it. 
wasn't lonely, wanting us perfectly complete, but he did it because he loves us, and it was all grace. God, that gap, is holy. He's good. He's perfect. He's loving. He's just. And then here's us over here. We are not. Although created in an image like him, we are nothing like him. One of the reasons that people fail to see the beauty of God is because they fail to see the depravity of their own lives. They measure themselves up against other people. I'm not as bad as the guy at the 5 o'clock news. I'm not that, I'm not that guy. I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as. You see, those people have never tried to measure themselves up against the perfection of God. He requires perfection. So when you measure yourself up against the straight edge of perfection of Christ, then and then only can you see the crookedness of your own heart. Paul says in Ephesians that we are rebels to God, objects of his wrath, blind, dead, deaf, dead to God right now in our natural born condition, separated from God today, on a course for death forever and ever, eternally separated from God in a real place called hell. That is us. But God being rich in mercy wanted to bridge that gap. He wanted to provide a way, one way. He came out of heaven, stepped off of the throne, came down as the God-man Jesus Christ. He did not lay aside his godness. He cloaked himself in human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. Christ, to then live 33 years, every millisecond of his life, perfect, publicly and privately, in front of people, in his closet, at his house where no one was there, every single millisecond, perfect before the eyes of God. I blew that this morning in the first five seconds I woke up. I don't know about you. Why did God do that? Because we could not do that. See, God required perfection, but we couldn't do it. So Jesus did it for us. And then, according to the plan of God, he went to a tree. And on that tree, he laid down on that cross. There was no wrestling of Jesus. You get down there, Jesus. He wasn't fighting them. Let me go. No, he... Laid down like a lamb led to the slaughter on the cross. It says, kill me. This must happen. And as he's on the cross, being held there, he bore the full weight of our sin. A hundred million of our past, present, and future failures to God all put on them only one in the world who didn't deserve it. On that cross, he's bearing the full weight of the fury and the wrath of God on sin. And it crushed him. He could not bear the weight, but he did it because he loved us. To the point where he finally cried out, 
it is finished. Not a sin remained. Paid the debt for all who believe. And he breathed his last breath. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the tomb of the grave. This was hell and Satan's defeat. Victorious. He did all of that because there was a gap between God and man, and it pleased him to provide a way. And God has called all of us to repent, to, follow, to, to stop following the patterns of the world and being our own gods and our own kings, to follow the one and only Jesus Christ, to truly repent, to truly believe and truly trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you ever done that? I don't mean go to church. I don't mean have religion. I don't mean claim Christianity on your profile. I mean, have you given your life to Jesus? I want to almost aggressively invite you uh, to come talk to us when we get done today in a very loving way. I'd love to talk with you about that if you feel, uh, man, a pull or your allegiances being shifted away from the world and away from you and onto the Lord, I would love to talk to you today when we get done in just a few moments. Now, I want you to know that why we share the gospel here is because God never saves those who try to save themselves. Never. You know, that old adage, God helps those who try to help themselves. Nope. Doesn't work that way. God never saves those who try to save themselves. And there might be some people sitting here today trying to save yourself. You might think a, a Sunday, that's, that's a pretty good try. I, I, maybe I'll do that enough where I'll, I'll get saved. Or you try to change your life, get your life in order, stop doing stupid stuff, clean your life up before God. Listen, all of those things are an attempt for you to save yourself and give up. Quit and give yourself over to the only one who can save you, which is Jesus Christ. That's the beauty that is found in the gospel, the gospel found in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So before we take today, here's what we're going to do. I want to show you uh, that there are two really common errors that we can have when we approach the Lord's Supper. The first one is infrequently. Like if we, if we don't do this in a frequent manner, uh, we can do it in an unworthy way. Uh, and frequent here uh, means this. Paul used the word often to describe the frequency of which we do it. So he didn't specifically say it must be done every single week. But it also implies the word often is not a couple times a year. It's not Christmas and Easter and maybe occasionally when you come through here. It doesn't mean that. Often means probably with some regularity, right? And that's why this... This gathering is so much more than just a casual thing that you observe when you can get here. This is why you would be all the more gathered or committed to this gathering here is because you might not only miss the praying of the God's people, the singing of God's people, the teaching of God's people, but you might miss the meal with God's people sitting at the table with Jesus. So infrequently is one way. The second way that we can do this in an unworthy way is irreverently. Irreverently. You see, this table, uh, and I don't, when I keep pointing to this, I don't mean this specific table, but picture this as an entire table today. 
of believers eating with Jesus. This is a sacred space. This is a space to, uh, to stop, to linger, to reflect, to sit in awe and examination in. And um, in, in this idea, uh, I was studying this week, and I read an article. It's called The Death of Sacred Spaces. And uh, the authors, the premise behind the, uh, the article was that the lost ability for us as a people to enter into sacred spaces and do that very thing, to stop, to linger, to reflect, and have a great reverence about the sacred space that we sit in. Uh, and the author cited the reason his defense for this, and it was a good defense, was the 10 million silly selfies taken at the Holocaust Museum in Berlin. You had these morons out there planking, skating, jumping on, and taking silly selfies of each other as they sat and paraded on top of dead Jews' tombs. They turned a memorial for the Holocaust into the Yolocaust. That's what they did here. And, and that is the inability to enter into sacred spaces and have great reverence. That's what communion is. It's the place for us to do that very thing. And when we look at this time during the service, this ritualistic movement as just a, a thing that we, we're thinking about, oh, we have to hurry up and get through this because I've got to get down there before the line gets too long to pick up my kid and get out of here. The parking lot's going to get really bad. We've got to go eat a meal. If that's what we do during this moment, it's the equivalent of taking a selfie at a funeral. Let's sit here together, let's feel, let's pause, let's stop, let's linger in the things that Paul calls us to linger in so we can approach this table in a worthy, worthy way. Thankfully, Paul told us how to do this. He didn't just say, go do it. He gave us, um, in 1 Corinthians 11 here, after the, the, the taking of the Lord's Supper, he gave us what is called in the Protestant church the fencing of the table. The fencing of the table. The fencing of the table is not to keep people out, but it is to protect those who go in. All right, so let me read this. How do we approach the table with reverence? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the first thing that we do here, and I need to understand in the fencing of the table, is that this meal is for believers in Jesus Christ only. Those who have given and trusted in the gospel that Jesus Christ saves, and they've given their life over to it. So it's for those people, if you've not yet done that in your life, in just a moment, these trays are going to pass. I'm asking you, because I think Paul asked you, would you just abstain and let that pass on through? Just let it go. Because really what I'm hoping to do is that you wouldn't feel exclusion, uh, but you would feel this inside of you, this desire, this allegiance-shifting idea that I want to be at this table. Like I, I want to be there. How can I be at this table and that you would come find us after, and we would love to talk with you about how you can be invited to the table. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing is the examination for the believer. Believers we're getting ready to take. And we have to understand first that none of us are worthy to come to the table. None of us. We have just professed that we are only worthy because of Christ's worthiness. So how do we do that? We, how do we do this in a worthy manner, which Paul says? Well, we come in a posture of examination, which means confession of sin. Confession of sin in our life. And we don't run from that. Because surely we know that there are no secret places that we can hide from God, right? Like we don't really believe that God just kind of looks down upon us on Sunday morning and just makes sure that we're here. And he's like, okay, we're cool. <laughs> we don't know that. He, he is omniscient and omnipotent. He knows every single thing that is going on in our mind and our conscience and our life right now. There's no escaping the gaze of God. And then we try to hide our sin from God, he'll drag it out in the open. But the beauty of it is, is when we, treat, when we bring our sin before God, you know what he does with it? He hides it behind the cross. So we're good at confessing. We're good at calling ourselves sinner saints. You know why we're cool with being called sinners who still sin? Because Christ died for sinners, Right? So we would proclaim and confess all the more. Because every time we confess the deeper convictions in our sin, the more we can boast in the cross. So we don't hide those things. We come to him and we confess, hey, I've been a bad parent. I have failed this week so badly. And God, you already know these things. I'm just telling you. I've dishonored my parents this week. I've rebelled against them. I've had lustful eyes. I'm struggling with that pornography thing you've been talking about. I've got judgmentalism in my heart. My tongue's like a viper. It speaks like hate speech and, and gossip everywhere I go. God, God, you know my heart. Search my heart in this moment. And God, I confess these things before you and I repent of these things. If there is no repentance, there really is no confession. Confession leads to repentance. So this is the place where we linger in our sin and we do those things, knowing that our sin doesn't affect our relationship with God, but it does affect our fellowship. Okay? So the place I want you to get to, and I'm trying to communicate here, is that the more you deepen your confessions and your convictions, the deeper you go there, the higher your praise will be. The deeper your convictions the higher your praise will be. So how we're going to do this, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you some uh, space to do this examination that we've talked about today. It's going to be different. We're not going to sing over you. We're going to let, let each other, and I'm going to do it too. We're going to sit and linger here for a moment, and then I'm going to come back up, and then we're going to uh, walk through the elements together. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, I think about your words in your scripture, in your faithful servant, David, who prayed such a bold prayer when he said, search my heart. God, that's a bold invitation. And God, I think the only way that we could pray a prayer like that and say, search my heart, do a surgery in us, expose everything inside me, God, is having a confidence in the cross knowing that anything that's exposed in your quest 
for the sin that is in us is all covered in the blood of Jesus. Would you help people to see that confession is good for the soul? God, I pray that after our deepening and lingering of sin, God, I pray that we would be able to quickly move to a place of rejoicing. Rejoicing that you've paid it all. In Jesus' name.
before we take and um, the elements together, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we typically do here. Uh, we're going to do a um, responsive reading that's based upon the Heidelberg Catechism of 1512. And catechism is not a word that we use often around here, but just basically a catechism is man's uh, summary of Christian truths and Christian principles taught to educate and edify the church, um, usually in the form of a question and answer format. Today we're going to do it in a form of responsive reading. Uh, the first is uh, I will read uh, by myself, and then the second phase is inviting you uh, to read. You'll be prompted uh, by the words church up on the screen, and that is when you uh, will begin to read. So let's do that together. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? Church, in this way. love hearing uh, you read uh, out loud with one voice, with one accord. Um, I talk all the time on Sunday, so I love hearing from you. Uh, but as we take this together, we look at the Gospel of Luke in uh, chapter 22, verse 17 through 20. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, oops, I'm all right, I went too far. Sorry, hold on. Yep. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourself. For I will tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the Lord's Supper causes us to look back, but it also is a, a moment and a space for us to look forward to what we see as a meal that we that awaits us on the other side of glory, which Revelation 19.9 calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
Revelation 19, 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For those in Christ, there's another meal that awaits us on the other side of glory. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And oh, what a feast it will be. Tabs paid for, picked up by Jesus Christ. He paid it all. So today, as we celebrate these little pieces of bread and these little cups of wine or juice, these are only little appetizers compared to the meal and the feast that awaits us at the wedding supper of the Lamb. These little cups of juice and these little bits of bread symbolize the little fellowship to which we have with Christ today in comparison to the fellowship that we will have when we sit at the table with Jesus in the flesh, sitting there at the table with God in the flesh, seeing the look upon his face, the words from his mouth, feeling the touch of his hand. That is what awaits the believer. Revelation says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Are you going to be there? Do you have a confidence and assurance that you will sit at the table with Jesus Christ in glory? Listen, if you don't, If you doubt that sometimes, maybe it's because you think about your works and how you've dishonored God and you don't deserve it. Listen, we want to help you walk through what assurance of salvation means. If you don't know, please come talk to us today when we dismiss. Don't walk out. This is eternal things. This is the most important thing that you could possibly do is knowing if you're going to be at this feast. Thank you for leaning into that space uh, with us today as a church. Uh, Paul said that taking of the Lord's Supper would either be for the better or for the worse. That would either grow us in the likeness of Jesus every time we did it or it'd make us worse. I pray it's been for the better today. As we close out, uh, I'm going to insert a little something different here. Don't, get, uh, don't move quite yet because we have an important church announcement to give to you. Uh, we're going to do that with this video. Check it out and I'll speak to it in just a moment. Hey, Life Point, man, we hope you're having a great day, and we want to communicate to you some very important news about David and Jennifer and their family okay. that also pertains to our Riverdale campus uh, down in Murfreesboro. Uh, as you One know, David you. has One been left. with us for about 13 years on staff. He served as our student pastor for about uh, six or seven years. Uh, he served uh, after that. I, I asked David, David, man, would you consider going to Bangkok? Uh, to be our campus pastor in Bangkok. That's a big commitment. That's uh, a few thousand miles away. Uh, Obviously, they prayed about it, and David and Jennifer came and said, Pat, if that's where the organization needs us, that's where we'll go. So he served there for three years. And then at the end of that, I said, David, uh, would you consider going to Murfreesboro and starting our Murfreesboro campus, which is now our Riverdale campus, and he prayed about that, he and Jennifer, and they came back and said, Pat, if that's where the organization needs us, that's where we'll go. That's, that's the kind of loyalty uh, that David and Jennifer have served uh, in this place with over thir- the last 13 years. And so in that 13 years, it, it, it was obvious to me, and probably you too, if you know David and Jennifer, that God has 
gifted him, equipped him, and even called him to be a senior pastor. And so that's what I've been training him to do, to be quite honest with you, over those years. And in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of conversations about David's future and what God's calling him to do. And, and so and it, it become clear to me and to David through that, man, this is, this is moving to where God is calling him to go do that. And so during my sabbatical, I uh, uh, was spending some really concentrated time with the Lord this summer. And, and it became clear to me that, man, we need to, we need to release David uh, because he, he's loyal to this place. And I know he was struggling. And, and it's just to release him and tell him, man, if that's what you need to do, let's, let's go for that. So the week I came back, actually, David wanted to sit down and talk. And we talked. And, and so uh, I said, David, man, it, I think it's time. And, and you think it's time. And, and so I, we're here to communicate to you that God has called David. And it's now time for David to move out and to be a lead pastor of a church. And so, uh, man, it's bittersweet for us, but uh, uh, it's, it's bitter because we don't want to lose his family, but it's sweet because it's what we've trained him to do and, and everything. And David, why don't you tell us what's going on with you and where you're going, you and Jennifer, and, and everything where you are right now. Yeah, so first of all, LifePoint has been so gracious to us. We, we it has been out? such a joy and uh, a blessing on our lives. Just to be able to be pastor here in every capacity that we've been here for 13 how, years. How and, uh, bad? How bad? Uh, you know, as Pat mentioned, I have over the last two years been wrestling with uh, how God has gifted day, and called me, and uh, just this kind of restlessness and tension between um, <laughs> my calling and loyalty and love of this place, church, staff, everybody, and so. Uh, God has been so good to us just to continue to call and to be patient with us and, and uh, just to, to, to open doors for us to go and, and be that lead pastor. And, uh, uh, and yeah, like we said, it's time for us. Uh, God has uh, opened those doors at a church. Uh, in South Florida, and so we're going to be suffering for Jesus. Yeah, I mean, when God calls you, I mean, I threw David over the top. He's calling me to the beach. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, right. And no, uh, God has opened the door for a great church in South Florida. The name of the church is First Baptist Church Boynton Beach, and uh, we're going to be the, I'm going to be the lead pastor there, and uh, we'll be moving our family in the next couple of months. And uh, but God has again just been so gracious to us in our time here to to raise us up, help us to grow, help us to have great influence, and and uh, just helping us to be that senior pastor that, and train us to be that that we, we need to be. And so it's bittersweet. Uh, you know, it's uh, sweet that we get to go be with a great congregation, healthy, beautiful yeah. church. Uh, but it's bitter that we leave a place that we love so much and care for and has cared for us uh, so much. And so uh, we want to let you know what's going on with us. And, and by no means does this mean that we're dropping off the face of the earth. Right. We hope to still be connected with a lot of you and with this church and be partnered with LifePoint in some capacity. And uh, we know God has uh, used these 13 years, not just for those 13 years, but we know God uh, will continue to bear right. fruit for our time uh, together. And so we're looking forward to what that looks like in the future. And church, the man, it, it, we've used the word bittersweet. We use it again. It is. Uh, it's bitter because we're losing them, but sweet because, he, he, man, he grew up in this church, really. When he was a teenager, got saved, came into this church. It's what we've trained him to do, and so that's a beautiful thing, church, uh, to do that. And so uh, David's not just, he said, not dropping off the face of the earth. We're not just, he's not just leaving. We're sending him, all right? right, which means we're going with him, and we'll partner with him in any way possible, especially if it means hanging out at the beach some. So uh, we'll, we'll partner with them <laughs> yeah. in any way possible. And so, uh, man, he's going to be here, and Jennifer, their family, is going to be here for another couple of weeks at Riverdale, and then uh, they'll be heading on to Florida. And so we just want to communicate to you what's going on. We want to tell you God bless you, uh, and God is awesome, and he is going to 
you know, do great things through David and Jennifer and still in the life of Riverdale and all of campuses at Life Point. So God bless you. I hope you have a great day. And uh, thank you for uh, being a part of this wonderful congregation. Yeah, love you, Life Point. Well, uh, as Pat had mentioned there, it is a sweet sorrow uh, for, uh, for losing David in a very big way. I, look out, I was scanning out, looking at the congregation. I know that many of you have uh, been marked by him individually by his teaching, or it might be your, your student um, who's gone to camp several times. And uh, I, would, I would probably make the case that there's many other ways that David has influenced and mark the life of all campuses, because uh, he doesn't just serve as a Riverdale campus pastor. He serves on our elder team, uh, as all of our campus pastors do, that, inf- that affect all of our churches globally and locally as well. So he- he's done things that we don't even see, that you may never see, but uh, we love this guy. I love him. He's a dear, dear friend of mine, and, uh, and we're just going to miss him. But we're also very excited about the, what the Lord's doing and affirm and support. And we at the Creek are going to honor him with our, with our words and our deeds. We're going to pray for uh, him and his wife and for quickening of relationships and transitions and all of those things. Uh, but we just wanted to let you know about that today. And uh, we thank David for who he is and what he's meant to our church. Uh, as we get ready to, to sing a song uh, and close this out called You Hold It All, uh, we have to really ask ourselves, do we really believe that he holds it all? And that means all the things that we don't understand, the things that we do understand, the mysteries, the clarities, all of those things, uh, we proclaim that God holds it all. And that's a, that's a victory chant. Um, and I know that Judy and Brad are going to lead us in song to God. And uh, I hope you join us in that. As I told you earlier, the deeper conviction should lead to higher praise. So there's a great opportunity uh, to sing as people who've been forgiven. Um, also want to say that I see a lot of people that I don't know, and I'm glad you're here. I love it that I see people that are unfamiliar faces. Would you today um, either take that Connect card and put it in the baskets on the way out or come see me? I would love to talk with you and just tell you thank you for coming. And then also if you want to uh, man, receive the Lord today as your, uh, as your Savior and your Lord, would you come talk to us as well? Stan, let's sing. Love you guys. Uh, let's worship.